Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. This lecture series is one of the many efforts across the UAE and the wider Gulf to confirm the vibrancy of the past and the promise of the future in this region. Tonight, we're honoured to have Professor Derek Kennett speak with us. For the last two years, Derek has been working in the Department of Archaeology at the Sultan Qaboos University in Oman, and he is soon to return to Durham University in the UK, where he is a senior lecturer. Derek is an archaeologist who specialises in settlement, trade and economy in all periods, but particularly in the late pre-Islamic and Islamic periods in the Western Indian Ocean and Arabia. He has extensive fieldwork background, having excavated in Europe, North Africa and the Middle East. He first came to the Gulf in 1988 to do fieldwork in Kuwait and is currently involved in, in a number of projects encompassing the Gulf and the Indian Ocean, specifically in the UAE, Oman, Kuwait, India and Iran. I'm sure we're going to hear about some of this work in the lecture this evening. So without further ado, I will turn you over to Derek. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Fiona. And it's a great honour to be here, actually, in this, uh, this hub of intellectual activity in the Gulf region for, for archaeology. So thank you very much for inviting me and um, thank you very much for coming. I think the title on the screen makes clear what I'm going to be talking about. I did struggle a little bit, actually, when I was putting it together. When I offered to give this, I thought that would be easy. I've been doing quite a lot of work on this recently. But when I came to put it together, I thought, hmm, I can't really... It wasn't gelling into an argument. I don't really have an argument. So this paper might not make a lot of sense which is quite refreshing to be able to say at the beginning of a lecture. But I do hope that in the course of making a few points and expounding some ideas and giving some information on recent fieldwork and new discoveries, as well as some older material, that it at least will be of interest to you and throw some light on this fascinating period, a very important period in the region's history. My instinctive approach to archaeology is, is the long durée. That's my friend Tim Powers here, and we have frequent... Uh, discussions about this. Where are you, Tim? We have frequent discussions about this. Tim's very much more into the <laughs> historical specificity, and I like to see big patterns. And, that's, uh, and I think that's what archaeology can do well, and that's the sort of fieldwork that we've been doing, is looking at long-term settlement patterns, climate change, and so forth across the region. And one of the special features of, of settlement and archaeology in this part of the world, along with the high visibility of the archaeological record, and the lack of vegetation and soil is, is the fact that settlements on the whole tend to be relatively short-lived. And I think that's because the settlement here is rather fragile, that most settlements, two, three, four hundred years, and they disappear, and they're refounded maybe a few years later. There's a fragility to the archaeological record, and I'm pretty sure that's because of the hyper-arid climate that you only need in this situation, four or five years of drought, which are fairly regular occurrences, and you're pretty much forced to move on if you're feeding your family by, through agriculture and so forth. So we have a very unstable settlement uh, here, and that makes it very interesting, being as well on the edge of a, an important climatic divide between the monsoonal system and the Mediterranean weather systems. That also makes this area a very interesting, a fascinating laboratory to look at long-term settlement change. And we notice, therefore, these booms and busts uh, in the settlement history record of Eastern Arabia. There are periods when there are rather dense uh, accumulations of settlement and quite probably quite high populations. 
And then there are other periods when um, there seems to be very little going on at all. And trying to understand how that and why those things are happening and to what degree they're related to climate is one of the questions I'm interested in. Trying to disentangle the broad economic trends from the, what Braudel would have called the evenimental history and trying to understand those, the forces that shape the region. And, and specifically today, I'm going to be talking, as the, the title says, about the rise of Islam and the Sasanian period, trying to apply these ideas to that time. This slide here shows some work, a paper I'm working on at the moment, still some way from completing, trying to map out these patterns across the region. And it's interesting that there are some periods, like the fourth millennium, like the 4th to 7th century AD, blue represents low periods of periods of low activity or relatively little evidence in the archaeological record, and red represents periods of very high, relatively high density and uh, easy to find. And you can see that there are periods when the whole of Eastern Arabia seems to be unified in either going up or down, and then there are other periods when it seems to fragment and there are pockets of, of high levels of activity and pockets where there's very little evidence. And trying to understand, trying to map this out in, in the increasingly good archaeological record that we have and trying to um, use that as a backdrop to help us understand the specific historical events that are happening in different periods, I think is one of the, one of the important approaches that we need to take in this region. We can take in this region now. Uh, now, after almost 50 years of archaeology in the region, we've got a reasonably good record to, uh, with which to do that. For those of you, I know there are some members of the general public here and there are some academics, so I'm trying to pitch a little bit. For those of you who don't know much about this, of course, the rise of Islam in the 7th century, apart from its religious significance from a historical perspective, it was a massively important event in human history. For a brief period of time, Arabia became the centre of the world stage, actually. As the Islamic conquest took place, we see uh, the, the early Muslims conquering a good half of the two most powerful empires in the world. It's real, and it, a, a, a historical phenomenon that we really still can't understand. I, I tell my students in Oman, it's a bit like imagining Burkina, waking up tomorrow morning and seeing in the newspaper that Burkina Faso has invaded America and, and China. It would be a bit of a shock. And, and I think when we look at the, the, density, the low density of population, I'm not saying anything bad about Arabia, but the low density of population and the fact that it was predominantly mobile nomadic groups, very few big urban settlements. And um, understanding how that happened is still one of the big questions. So what was going on in Arabia? at this time that brought this to pass? And, and how can we help try to understand it? Because the historical record is very difficult. We don't, no one really wrote anything down for another two or 300 years. So we have to use archaeological evidence if we want to understand this time. And uh, that's one of the exciting things, actually, about it, and trying to fit it into this uh, kind of thing. Traditionally, this period, the late, the Sasanian period and the early Islamic period, has been our understanding of it in terms of its broader economic dynamism has been based on Adam's work in Iraq, where he showed, or worked based back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, where he, seemed, he suggested that the Sasanian period, the period just before the rise of Islam, was a big boom time with a massive, dense occupation of the countryside. And then with the rise of Islam, with the Islamization of Iraq, that population level, those population levels dropped quite quickly. And that's been the paradigm that's been around now for some time, but it's being challenged. And actually, I think some of the problems we face with Adam's work is that his chronology wasn't quite right. And I think it's been, he misdated some material. And it may now, I think it's almost certain now, we need to shift that exp the, 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 the boom actually into the early Islamic period. And that, see, the Sasanian period is actually a little bit less. So shifting things around a little bit. And, uh, and that's an important point because Iraq's very closely connected with the Gulf and the whole of Eastern Arabia. It's a key link. And in fact, um, this paradigm led to uh, one of the most important interpretations of this period is J.C. Wilkinson's interpretation in a fascinating book and an excellent book, uh, Water and Tribal Settlement. It's a very famous book. 
And in that book, Wilkinson suggested that uh, the Sasanian period was in fact the, represented the apogee of agricultural development in Oman, in southeastern. When I say Oman, I'm talking in the old meaning of Oman. That's, I don't want to upset anybody here in the UAE, but uh, in the old way of when you, the UAE and Oman, northern Oman, were very much part of a, in the Islamic historical sources, were part of a unity and entity. And in that, in that time, he, Wilkinson argued that the, that, that, that the Sasanian period was the highest point, in fact, of agricultural development. And that the Islamization actually represented a, a disastrous um, um, mess up of the, of the agricultural system. And this is based, um, it's difficult to know sometimes. He's a great historian, but he is also someone who gets very strong ideas. And it's difficult to know sometimes on exactly what data he's based this. But I'm challenging this now. I think I've challenged it in press. And I think now that I think we're starting to see a very different picture. We're starting to see that, in fact, the Sasanian period was a very low ebb and represent a very low levels of population and activity. And that changes our understanding of the Islamization process, in my mind, quite considerably. But just to set the scene a little bit, to go back a little bit, just before we come to the Sasanian period, in the period that we have no name for here, it's a rather unfortunate period. In, in the Mediterranean, it's called the Classical Period. In India, it's called the Early Historic Period. If you go to Central Oman, it's called the Samad Period. If you come to the Emirates, it's called the pre-Islamic raison. Uh, we don't have a name for it, but the period from about 300 BC to about 300 AD is a very important period in this part of the world. And we have massive amounts of uh, archaeological evidence from the whole of Eastern Arabia. Massively important sites like Taj in Saudi Arabia, huge, almost cities, I mean, a kilometer, nearly a kilometer by 500 meters, Roman, Romano-Greek cities out in the middle of the desert. We've got uh, massive amounts of Roman imports in the, the, the graves of Bahrain. We've got Malaya. Up in, in Sharjah territory, we've got uh, Adur in Uruguay. And in the central uh, Jabal Hajjah region, we've got the Samad culture, which is a... We don't have any settlements there, but we do have lots of tombs. And even in the Adias survey area, we, the, uh, and, and in Qatar, there are lots of, of isolated scatters of pottery and cairns across the countryside. All of this suggests that this was a period of quite high population and very dense, very intense activity for a period of 600 years or so. It's patchy, it's not all there all the time, but it's very, very heavily monetized as well. We have more than 2,000 coins from that period spread across Eastern Arabia. So that's a quite remarkable period and is a starting point for our discussion today. Why was it intense? What caused that boom in settlement across the whole region? We don't know. One possibility is that it was Roman trade or trade, Parthian Roman trade. And we know, for example, as you can see on this chart, the big cities of Petra and Palmyra and Duryodhana. We know that there was a huge amount of trade, incense trade, and the trade in other commodities from the Roman Empire, and also with the often forgotten Parthian Mesopotamia, a big population centre. And that trade would have certainly enriched Arabia. But would it have caused that level of population growth? Maybe the sparse populations in around Abu Dhabi and Qatar. Maybe they're related to pearling. That's something that Rob Carter suggested in his recent book. Maybe that's it. Or is this all not related to trade? Because sometimes it's difficult to see how trade could affect some of these small sites and how it could have actually caused population growth in the, to the level that we're seeing. Perhaps it's climatic. Is it climatic? It could be, because when we look at the sequence, the Speleothem sequence from Hotter Cave, Hotter Cave is a big limestone cave just in the uh, Western Hadjar Mountains, in, um, not far from Nizwa in Oman. Uh, the work that Dominic Fleitman has done on that, that's, that cave shows, as you can see here in the yellow band, that that period of time was actually also a period of relatively high rainfall for quite an extended period of time, as you can see on the, on the, on the chart there. So maybe, actually, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly in Oman. I mean, we don't know how much that could be quite localised. 
We don't know how much further that can be extended across eastern Arabia. But it certainly suggests that in some areas, rainfall may have had, the climate may have had an effect on this boom in, in, in settlement. It's slightly problematic in many ways, uh, one of which is the, the fact that the, the boom started in the earlier period, which I've just highlighted there. And you can see that that was a period of not particularly as low rainfall, actually. So doesn't always doesn't fit perfectly well, and we've still got a little bit of jiggling around to do to understand these relationships. The other problem with that argument is that it's precisely next to where Hotta Cave is located, there's some mud culture. We have a lot of tombs, but no settlements and very little traded material. So we're still struggling a little bit. And I told you this wouldn't make sense, this lecture at the beginning, so don't get angry, but we're still struggling a little bit to put the pieces of this puzzle together. We've got increasingly good data here and there, and we're trying to fit it all together and understand it. And I don't think we should expect it to be simple, but we are getting, I think we are making progress. So that sets the scene. Let's move on to the Sasanian period very briefly, which is quite easy to describe, actually, because there's very little evidence. It was a period, really, of marked decline. I mean, my favourite evidence for that is the number of imported grave goods in the Bahraini, the Tylos period tombs from Bahrain, which drops very quickly, as you can see in that graph there, into the 5th, 6th centuries. That's good evidence of a decline in trade and probably actually also a, de a decline in, certainly a decline in graves, probably a decline in population. The number of coins that are found across Eastern Arabia, relatively heavily monetized, relatively, as I mentioned in the earlier period, and these local imitations of Alexandrian tetradrams that we find across the whole region, especially in Adur and Malaya, more than probably now 2,000 of those are known from the region. They disappear pretty much. They seem to disappear out of circulation. And during the Sasanian period, in fact, we only have 76 coins from the whole of Eastern Arabia. And most of the good number of those actually come from early Islamic hordes because they're silver. They're actually re so it's only about 52 coins, actually, when we, when we count everything from the Sasanian period. It's a very dramatic decline in, in monetization. In fact, it's so low that I think we can say that the area certainly was not monetized. And I'll come back to the coins in a little bit, uh, but it's an interesting factor. Number of sites, relatively small, pocket, small pockets of sites here and there, far fewer than the period I just described to you. So we certainly seem to be looking at a decline in activity. Whether that's population and trade, we don't know. Malaya, site here in the United Arab Emirates, very famous site. We can see that through this period, through the late historic period and into the Sasanian period, the extent, at least, of the site uh, declines and it starts to contract in and around that famous fort, which is now next to the road, that fantastic bend in the road that Sheikh Sultan insisted on there being. So as he's zooming up to Dade, you have to switch the brakes on to go around the fort, which is, uh, is great, and it just shows an excellent piece of heritage management. That is, uh, that the population, the, the site seems to contract in around this area, and maybe the population is getting smaller. It's certainly changing. This fort here, which, the, which Michel Mouton excavated at Area H just a few years ago, it, it's a small mud brick fort. It's actually, this is the Google image of a fort. You can see it situated within the boundaries of a much bigger earlier fort. A very Hellenistic Parthian looking fort with square towers that no one's really excavated properly. It's on the ground if you, if you go there. So again, we're looking at a much smaller fort within an earlier fort. And that fort itself, the fort that Michel excavated, was one of the best excavations, if you like, finding gold and beautiful objects because it had been burnt down. It had been attacked and burnt down. There were gold objects scattered around and jewellery and all sorts of stuff. Um, but the people in, in the fort actually had attempted to block the entranceway in order to protect themselves from whoever was attacking, was attacking the fort, whoever burned it down. So Michel, is, Michel Mouton, who dug it, has, ex, has dated this maybe to the, right at the beginning of the Sasanian period. And he thinks it might even be related to the, an attack on the region by the first Sasanian Shah Anshar, Ardashir, 
I don't actually agree with that. I think the decline of this, the end of this, is, is representative. It's symptomatic of the whole period. This late, early Sasanian period, we are seeing almost all of the sites which had existed in that earlier period, all of them getting into trouble and being abandoned or declining in one way or another. So it's a pretty grim period. Same with Adur. Well, the red circle there shows the, more or less the extent of activity in the first century AD. And the blue circle in Area F, clustered around this small, strange little fort, shows the extent of activity by the third, fourth centuries AD. So clearly a contraction there too. And, 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 and eventually the site's abandoned. By the fifth century, it's abandoned. But it's not only in Eastern Arabia. The same pattern has been emerging in Yemen. Jeremy Shittakat and Christian Robin's work in, in Yemen. And you can see a similar drop-off down to the famous crashing down of the Marib Dam um, in the 570s or whenever it was, probably several of, the, of those now. But it seems that possibly that many parts of Arabia were in trouble at this time, were finding it difficult. For whatever reason, we still, we still don't know. For me, the coins tell us a little bit of a story. They suggest that the Nadia of this, these events were around about the 5th century because there are still quite a few coins circulating uh, from the time of Sharpur II, possibly related to payment of troops, and it's really by the 5th century that we see, and there's only one coin, actually, from the whole of for the century there, from between uh, the late 4th and the late 5th. One single coin from Bahrain in the whole of Eastern Arabia from that time. And, and then in the later period, it's only because we've got a hoard from Fujairah, which is a bit later that, that that number goes up at all. But maybe then we can see the 5th century as the pit, the lowest level of activity during the Sasanian period. Maybe. Uh, this is where we're thinking. This is a quantification of fantasy, I like quantification, and it's, it's great when you can quantify without having to quantify anything. So it's a sort of qualitative quantification, this. But if I had to sketch out what I thought, thing, how things were going on a graph, it would be like this, that we, we would see the first century ideas are, are really clo quite close to the, the highest levels of, of, of carrying that we see in the region. That's something that's gone wrong with that graph since I last worked on it, but that's roughly right. And then it seems to drop very rapidly down to about the fifth century, and then who knows what happens. I'll, I'll show you later in the, in the, in the talk. So that's the general gist of things as we move into the Sasanian period. As I said, very few sites as we get towards the late Sasanian period, there are fewer and fewer. What was the cause of the decline? Well, as we don't know the cause exactly of the boom, we can't really say. Is it the decline in trade? Was it the end of Roman trade that caused this decline? Or was it the climatic change? And we're not sure. It could have been either, because we know that Roman trade did decline. And we know that the cities of Palmyra and Petra, Petra wasn't abandoned, but Palmyra, more or less, well, very, both of, all of those cities declined in one way or another and changed at this time. And it's generally acknowledged that Roman trade did drop off at this time, in very, or changed at least in, very substantially. So it could well be that Roman trade, or Parthian trade as well, which we know less about, changed or declined and, and, and affected the region. But then the climatic record from Hotta also could answer the question, because as you can see here, as we move into the 6th century, certainly, the rainfall levels are dropping off quite considerably. And we come to a point in about 540, where we have a very marked, the highest point there on the graph, the very highest point, 540 AD, represents a dramatic end in a very, very arid period, a short-lived but arid period. But short-lived, it only has to be three or four years, and you're struggling to survive, as I said. So... Those uh, little interludes of very dry periods can actually be fatal for communities here and force them to pick up, up sticks and turn into Bedouin and move off to other areas where they can survive. So that might explain the fragility of the, the archaeological record. So as again, we can see the decline might be explicable through economic patterns, climatic patterns, or a combination of both. And uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. What did Arabia look like at this time? What was life like? Certainly it was undergoing a period of low population, 
No evidence of large or wealthy settlements as we had seen in the earlier period at all in the whole of eastern Arabia. And rainfall seems, at least in the areas where we know about it, to have been very low. Times are difficult. It must have been. I tried to get people to think of my students at Oman. Think of it. It's could have been your families. What would you be, what would you be doing if you were living in a village and you're having to feed your families and you're struggling, really, to produce enough food? I mean, it's the sort of event that we see from on the TV screen sometimes in, in East Africa. And that. so we have to imagine people would have moved. It would have been extremely difficult. We're not talking about this is not a historical thing. This is, these are real people who are going through these events. The evidence that we have for what was going on at this time is very limited. We have an increasing number of tombs from across the region, uh, some of, most of which have just occurred sporadically, and they're very few. The red dots show some of them. I haven't got them all on this map. There are a few more now, but that's, we don't have that many. They seem to, their, their existence seems to, um, without any settlements, associated settlements, seems to suggest a nomadic population to me. I know Tim, Tim's been doing some work at Baremi recently, and I think he has slightly different views, and, and there may still be a lot to discover, and there may be, have been a few centres of occupation. But the, the low numbers of, of settlements that we've been able to find so far, compared to, say, Iron Age or Bronze Age or later Islamic settlements, suggest to me that there was a large, large part of the population at this time Everything's relative, was, was, was nomadic, had become living in a nomadic state of it. One or two of these tombs we can see, a recently published one, dated by bone appetite dating to the late Sasanian period. Not sure how reliable that is, but it seems to fit with the assemblage. You can see the remains of, a, I think, a male uh, skeleton there and some seals from the Sasanian period. So quite rich, actually, as, but isolated, nothing going on, no settlement around it, no other, no, no, not really, obviously, part of a cemetery. Rather opportunistic burials here and there, it looks like. Very looks really likes a nomadic settlement to me, nomadic group. The same at uh, Jebel Alamela, the tomb dug by uh, uh, Dan Potts and Jody Benton, where you've got this male there with a number of weapons, including a nice uh, iron sword. Again, quite wealthy, quite rich, relatively, or on its own, not part of any settlement pattern or anything. Some recent work, which is not yet published, which um, Sabatino, my friend Sabatino, has allowed me to mention, these burials around Sahar on the Bartina. Uh, which is similar. There's a lovely burial here at Tienap and down at Clis Glitter Sohar with some beautiful Sasanian seals, a bronze seal and some carnelian seals there, which you can see. And this tomb here at near Liwa, just north of Sohar, with a uh, fourth century Sasanian coin. So the um, Leiden team under Blader During have also found a number of probable Sasanian cairns up there on that red dot that's most over to the left. So there's probably more to be discovered here, but no settlements, lots of tombs. Really nomadic, I believe. It wasn't all like that, though. We have got a couple of places in the late Sasanian period that were occupied. One of them is Kush, up in Ras al-Khaimah, and it's a tell, one of the bigger tells in the, in the UAE, actually. Tell is a mound of mud brick occupation that goes back, in this case, some time, probably at least a 1,000 years or more. And here we have a sequence of occupation running from at least about the 5th century through to about the 13th century, and we've got a nice bit of evidence for occupation during the Sasanian period right through to the, really, to the Islamization event, which is quite exciting. And you can see, don't worry too much about the dating, we've got pottery here, which is a little bit like the late pottery at Dur, but a little bit different, suggesting it's probably just a bit later. Going through to a carbon-14 date, there's a very nice calibration curve right in the middle of the 7th century. That's a very precise carbon-14 date that suggests, really, it's all just around the time of the Islamization, probably, or just a bit after. And then we have 8th century pottery in the later. We have a coin of Kavad I, the Sasanian emperor. Um, so we've got, and you can see from the buildings, we've got, a, it was the trench we dug there was intended to give a sequence of material culture. So we weren't doing an extensive excavation. So we can't say, unfortunately, very much about the building plans. 
But uh, we can see the building of that little tower, the one at the top there, a mud brick tower, in probably about the middle of the 7th to the early 8th century. Uh, and you can see here Sir, Sir President Anderson standing within the walls of it, two metre thick mud brick walls. Very small tower, probably, uh, I should imagine, it's a small farmhouse or housestead, which where the family living there uh, were clearly worried about their safety. And they put quite a lot of effort into building a well-defended place to live, uh, something like that with thick, much thicker walls than that drawing suggests. Could have been a local warlord or it could have been something specifically military, but I think the most likely explanation is someone living there, small population probably, and somebody who was, as I say, worried about their safety. Things were not secure at this time. We've been doing some work at Rustak recently, and Rustak is a Persian name. In Old Persian, it means uh, an administrative centre or something like that. So we'd ex everybody would expect to find, if anywhere, to find Sasanian material around Rustak. The local people talk about the fort there at Rustak, as, they call it Burj Kisra, Kisra being a generic term for a Sasanian emperor. Um, in this region, and so everybody, is, they, they talk and they have some very detailed stories actually in the region about, about that, but we found nothing so far at all Sasanian around the fort in Rostock. So that's surprising and interesting. But what we have found recently, which is very exciting, is a late Sasanian fort at a place called Fulej, near to Saham on the Bartina, just south of Sahar. And you can see a kite photograph of it there in the fort, looking very pr pretty in a lovely landscape of the middle Bartina coast there. This is a, a vertical kite photograph showing the trenches. We did two seasons of excavation with Eberhard Sauer and Seth Priestman and, and Nasser al-Jahwari. And we've got some quite good information coming out of this fort now. Uh, as you can see, it's uh, very well built. Well, you can see from this photograph, it's very well built, very professionally built. The stonework is very tight. The walls are 2.6 metres thick, stone walls. That is really quite a big, thick stone wall. The size of the fort is about 30 by 30 metres. There we can see. It's located near to, if you look to the south, a kiln. You can see the, the fort there, the blue outline, and just about 100 and so metres to the south, there's a little kiln area, which was a limestone, a lime kiln, a lime slaking kiln. And it looks like they were slaking the lime to make plaster, to plaster the walls when they built the fort. And you can see the remnants of plaster on one of the fort walls there. And the pottery from that period, very strange jars, which we don't really understand because they didn't have any bottoms. They have two empty ends. They're not pipes. We can't really understand what they were, but they must have been used in the, in the building of the fort, uh, scattered around and scattered around the lime kiln as well. The very thick walls and a very well-defended entranceway are very small. I can see that the, the entrance is only about a metre wide, and it, either side, on the outside, there are those little uh, semicircular towers that intended to defend it. But even that wasn't enough, because later on, the occupants of the fort decided to add those two little bits there to lengthen the entranceway, to protect the entranceway even more. So clearly, defence was important to the people that built this fort. It went through a phase of occupation, and then it seems to have changed, and we find a later phase of occupation, peripheral occupation on the top, which we're just getting into exploring at the moment. So occupation changed at a certain point. Can we date it? Yes, we've got a good series of C14 dates from this sequence now. Unfortunately, the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries are not good in terms of calibration curves. So I don't know if you can see the figures on those graphs, not, probably not very well, but the, the construction of the fort, including the lime kiln and the lower levels and the construction of the walls, we can, all, we can put in the 5th, 6th centuries. Not any more precise than that because of the calibration problems. Then there seems to have been a period of abandonment. Some windblown sand came in and then somebody came along 
and did other bits and pieces. A little fire here in the corner and maybe some other building and maybe a tanoa was built in the corner. And maybe we've still got a few more walls to find as the, the fort changed. But that all happened in the 7th century, according to the dates. Maybe the late 6th, 7th, even a little bit later, but it looks very much like the... It's exact, almost, again, exactly around the period when Islam first came to Oman at the time of the... It's normally thought that Amr ibn al-Assad's mission to Oman was about 629. So we could here be looking at a fort that was occupied by somebody who then abandoned briefly and then reoccupied right at the beginning of the Islamic period. And that's very exciting, and it really might start to tell us a little bit about what was going on. Who built the fort? It's a very unusual fort in, local, in the local context. It's a very deliberately military fort. When I first saw it, it made me think of a Roman fort. I, I work in Durham, up on near Hadrian's Wall. So I'm quite used to seeing that deliberately military Roman architecture built by a very military mind. Very different from some of the forts that we find in this period here in Oman and, and, and the UAE. It's tough, it's small, it's designed only for defence, there's no luxury involved. It's a very militaristic fort, and it's built, I think, by professionals who are military people. That's the impression it gives me. It's very different from anything in this region. That's a rather fanciful parallel with a Roman fort. I think it's something like that. Let's compare it to some. It's not like, for example, Malaya, the two forts in Malaya, which are rather posh forts. These are forts, I think, that were occupied. These were, they were forts, and they were well defended, at least the top one was, but they're also full of luxury items and rooms where you can live. And, and it's the, these are the residences of local sheikhs who were in charge and had to live in a fort, and that was prestigious and maybe even important militarily. But it was also a residence, and that's quite different. They represent sheikhly power, tribal power perhaps, rather than state power. That rather wacky fort in Adur, which nobody really understands. It looks like a fort, but it's very thin-walled, and it's got camel burials and all sorts of strange things going on in it. I don't really think that's a, a proper fort at all, quite honestly. In fact, the best parallel we have to this, the, the Falage Fort, is Area C Fort in Adur, which no one's really explored. It was dug briefly or drawn briefly by the Iraqi team that worked there many years ago. And I don't know whether the wonkiness is, is it actually by the builders or, or by, the, by the plans that we have, which are not, we're not, we don't have very good records of this fort. But if we compare all of those forts there, it's the closest parallel, actually, to Falage. And it might be worth going back and looking at that fort at some point in the future. It's got the same rounded corner towers and so forth. And if we just sketch out the forts that exist in this area, from, you can see a development quite clearly. We can see the early forts with the big square towers that are normally thought to be Hellenistic and Parthian, though the Malayha one is dated a little bit later. And then sometime around maybe during the 4th century, they shift over to the slightly smaller fort with rounded towers rather than the big square towers. And that's a transition that happens right across the Roman and Sasanian worlds, actually. Probably in, from about the 1st or 2nd centuries, but here a little bit later. Maybe they were a bit behind the fashions. And then as we move into the Islamic period, the Islamic examples we've got at Murwab and at Jumeirah, and that Sirah for all quite big round, round corner tower forts. So um, Falage sits about there, probably, and we don't know the date of the Bahrain fort exactly, but there does seem to be a transition, and it does seem to be plugged into the broader trends of military architecture across the Roman and Sasanian worlds, but with a little bit of a delay. So it makes sense, well, on the one hand, but the big difference for me, as I said, is that the Falage fort does not seem to be a shapely residence. For me, it was a fort that was built by, an, by a state, a professional army, I'll, I'll go out on a limb. A professional, it's a professional fort by a, stand, by a proper professional army, I would guess, if I had to guess. So what's going on there in that fort? Well, I think it's 
as good an evidence as we're likely to get for a real deliberate Sasanian colonial interest in the region. I really think it's, and it's quite possibly related to Khosrow I's activities, known activities in this region, or suspected activities in the region in the 570s, in the late 6th century. He went off to start worrying about Roman influence in Yemen, and he sent a group down there, and he, there are stories about him trying to change, revitalize the Sasanian army and, and soap up the defenses here and there. And there were all sorts of things that he was worrying about. So it would be a good time, and it would fit more or less with our chronology. So it could be that this fort represents something of that ilk. It's hard to see that it was built by locals because it's hard to see what particular group of locals could have built or would have wanted to build a fort like that. Now, that's still something that we want to, we're going to need to explore. What was it doing where it is? It's out in the middle of the Bartana. The Bartana, if you've never been there, it is the coastal area, the Sahal al-Bartana, about four kilometers wide, is very fertile. It's alluvial and it's got high water table. It represents 53% of Oman's agricultural output today. But as you come back across the Bartana, it's a 40, 50 kilometer wide gravel plain, which is pretty much useless to anybody. And this fort's right bang in the middle of it. Why is it there? What's it doing? It's only a small fort. Could only have held a relatively small number of soldiers. We don't know. One possibility is that there are copper resources here in the hills and that it's controlling a route between the coast and the copper resources. That's a possibility, but there are copper resources all over this part of Oman, all up to the Wadi Jizi and beyond. So it's not a particularly special area. The other possibility is that it fits into a, a type of de defensive technology that was very common at this time, the limes or the line of forts. If, we went any, if you go anywhere else, in, certainly in the Roman world at this time, not Hadrian's Wall, but the classic way of defending a, a frontier is not to build a wall, it's to build a chain of forts. That's regarded, and to sally forth and, and stop any raiding that might occur. So maybe Falage is the first of a series of forts. This is a bit fanciful, and I think you can probably realise that, but maybe Falage is one, and we're starting to look for them. Maybe there are others. Maybe it's a chain of forts that was designed to protect the Bartana, protect the lower Bartana, which was the most fertile part of Oman, uh, from raiding from the interior. That's a possibility, far from certain. But it does link to this very well-known text that we have from uh, Al-Altabi in the Ansab al-Arab, probably a 10th century AD text, where he describes a contract, actually, between uh, the Persians and the Az, the uh, local Arabs. And he says quite clearly that the Persians held the coast, uh, Shatut al-Bahar and, and so forth, and the Azd were in the mountains and in the, the deserts and the peripheral areas uh, of Oman. This is a difficult text to be certain of. Um, Harry Munst has written an excellent paper on it, it's coming up to be published, but there are some problems, so can we trust it? J.C. Wilkinson based a lot of his interpretations on this, and I'm not sure it'll carry so much. One of the points that Harry Munt makes is that Al-Altabi is describing pretty well the situation he saw when he was alive in the 10th century, with the Abbasids controlling the Bartana and the Arabs, the local Ivadi Arabs in the interior, and a bit of a conflict. So is this a sort of pushing back and reinterpreting the past in, in the light of the, the time that uh, Al-Altabi was living? We don't know. Or, or is it a, really a, 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 the, the transcription of a, a, a local historical tradition, an oral tradition, which is reliable and something that we should believe? It's quite possible. But it's very tempting uh, we don't know also what period it describes. It could effectively describe almost any period from the late Achaemenid period through to the, to the start of Islam, really. But Wilkinson has suggested it relates to the late Sasanian period. There's no evidence for that, but it's possible. But it does fit very nicely with the idea of a, a Sasanian occupation on the coast and the Azd Omani in the interior, with, the nomadic Azd in the interior with those graves which I described to you. 
And so uh, as a simple-minded archaeologist, I'm very tempted by that suggestion and something to think about. But it's, we have to be careful not to jump into this, into this. And this is certainly something now that we're, we're exploring as an idea. Uh, just in case you were unclear in that text, the uh, al mentions the Asawira and the Muraza, but these are Persian names for cavalry officers and local governors, which are a group of 4,000 who were based there that he mentions. But that's a, a, a point aside. So maybe Falaise, which is clearly quite an important monument, is going to give us a little bit more information and a bit clearer understanding of the precise layout of Oman at this time and how it was developing into an early Islamic country as it came up to the period of Islamization. Can we expand this interpretation a bit more widely? There are the red dots of the Sasanian graves that we know about. There are a few more to add with the whole of the Bartana as a, as a Sasanian colony. Well, maybe. I mean, we still need a bit more evidence before we can really be, be sure of this. But that's a, a working hypothesis, I suppose you might say. Why would the Sasanians have been interested in this region at that time? Possibly partly to ward off Roman interest. There had been some missionaries and so forth, Christian missionaries in the area. Maybe they were worried about that, negating the threat of a launch pad against Iran. Certainly happened later on in the middle of the 7th century. Agricultural resources, which are relatively short in this region. The Barton is still, even today, an important resource. Mineral resources, the copper resource. There are lots of reasons. The control of maritime activity or, or even an ideological or even egotistical reason for wanting a bigger empire. So there are plenty of possible reasons why the Sasanians might have been interested. What does it tell us about the, the famous Jolanda then? The, the, the Jolanda to whom the letter was sent by the, by the prophet, peace be upon him, the famous letter, which I'll show you in a minute, that's written to the Jolanda brothers. When we, I know Omanis, and I don't know about Emiratis, but when, I, they learn, when Omanis learn about the Jolanda at school, I think they, they have the Jolanda kings. They imagine that the Jolanda kings were these great kings who lived in palaces and cities. I think the evidence we've got so far, and probably Tim would disagree with me, but probably we need to imagine the Jolanda rather as sheikhs of Bedouin tribes in the interior rather than kings living in big palaces. And maybe that's the way it was. Nothing bad about that at all. In fact, that's the, the true Arab, isn't it? So I don't know. But the, um, this famous letter, which I think most people here, most locals know about from their studies at school, this famous letter from the Prophet exhorting the Jalanda to adopt Islam, it's not a letter full of spiritual encouragement. It's a letter full of rather tougher threats. Become Muslims, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. If you, don't, I'll, if you do, I'll support you. If you don't, it's a pretty tough letter. Maybe it helps us, this, the situation that I've just set out, maybe it helps us to contextualise that letter a little bit. Maybe the Jalanda, if we see them as a, the local Arabs living in the interior as Bedouin, but their main, the most precious land in their area was the Barton that was occupied by foreigners. Maybe they saw an opportunity in this letter to combine together with other Arabs and to create a force that pushed the foreigners out of, of Arabia. And we certainly see this in Al-Altabi's Al text. There are various points where he mentions that the locals offered the chance to, to, the, to the Sasanians to convert and they refused and they were pushed out. We see that very clearly mentioned three or four times. So maybe the archaeological evidence I'm presenting to you will help us a little bit to contextualise and understand the historical evidence, very thin historical evidence that we've got for understanding the rise or the Islamization of this as a historical, not as a religious, but as a historical phenomenon. Maybe it will help us to understand that and maybe contextualize it. Going back to the climatic evidence, 
again, as I said, this is a, a period which we ha- where we do have clearly a decline in rainfall and a period where it could well be in certain parts of Oman, at least, uh, evidence for low, low levels of settlement. And then finally, I'd like to move into the early Islamic period. Now with the Islamization complete and the local tribes converting and the region becomes part of this great Islamic economy. The Islamic empire becomes the greatest empire in the world. The foundation of Baghdad in, in the 760s, within 10 years, it was the biggest city in the world. Muslim traders sailing to China, East Africa, India, and a lot of that trade going through the, through the Gulf. Basra and Baghdad and Siraf and Sahar, all of these major trading cities, well-known from the sources, rich and respected and known well beyond the region. So we're back into a boom period, and, and in fact, that's reflected very much in the local archaeology. Suddenly, we're not desperate to try and find sites anymore. Suddenly, we've got an abundance of archaeological sites across the whole region. I'm building a database, another paper I'm working on, I'm building a database of these sites, and it's already gone well past 50 of uh, good, substantial sites. There are many smaller pockets and bits and pieces all over the place. So there's a, some of them are very interesting as well. Look at Qatar. All over the northern part of the, of the Qatar Peninsula, we've got little pockets of, of stone buildings uh, and 8th century pottery. In some places, it's quite substantial settlement, like in Kuwait and in um, other places, which I'll show you in a minute. So things have turned around. Things have turned around quite dramatically. Remember that early, the pre-Sasanian period, that big boom time, a long period of time after that, where we had very little going on during the Sasanian period, we were struggling for archaeological sites. Suddenly, the lights have been switched back on again, and we've got archaeological evidence from the whole region in abundance. Some examples of some of the work we did up in Kuwait, where we've got a series of literal settlements that suddenly pop up out of nowhere in an area that really had never been occupied in the whole of human history, as far as we can tell. And suddenly, in the 8th century, late 7th century, maybe early 7th, suddenly all these sites pop up and people are living in little stone huts, and they're trading lots of glass and and glazed potteries coming in from Iraq, and they're doing all sorts of things that they'd never done before, and and it doesn't last very long. Here is a place called Mugera, which is quite a long site. It's about a kilometre long. You can just see the dots on that map. This is a composite kite photograph, and you can see the blue, the dark blue, are stone buildings. Uh, So it's a village, or a a settlement, you can't really call it a village. It's so long, it's not very dense. I think the first thing when you look at this and think, is that a village? It's not very dense. The reason for that, I think, is these guys are Bedouin who have just settled down. And what they're doing is they're rebuilding a Bedouin camp in stone. Their culture still was still as of the desert Arab, and they were hadn't yet really got their heads around living in a in a sedentary village. So they're building themselves huts, but they're leaving those big spaces in between them for the sort of privacy that, that Bedouin camps often want, and the space for the animals to move around. So I think we're seeing almost a fossilized Bedouin camp there, and this represents this sedentarization process. So it was happening at this time in that part of Kuwait, in that Kadhimah, as, as it as it was known. Here's a close up of of uh, some of those on the surface, again, from the kite photograph, and you can see quite clearly the spacing between them. Not like any normal village that we would be used to. It's something quite unusual. But the little huts themselves were actually quite substantial and quite nicely built and developed over time and had rooms added onto them. So the people were there for some time, and they had a lot of material. They were living a, a luxurious life in some ways. They were using the latest glass from Mesopotamia. They were using glazed pottery, the same glazed pottery that the caliphs were using in Samara. And these were people who were in touch, in part of the trading systems. Maybe pilgrimage, maybe trade, and a mixture of it. And they stuck around for a while, and then they suddenly disappeared in the early 9th century, 
it all disappeared. But that's another story which I'm not going to be going into today. We have many sites of this period. Halela in Rasselheima here in the UAE, excavated by a Japanese team just north of, just around Ramps, the town of Ramps, modern town of Ramps. And again, a ferry, stone buildings, a nice imported material, and another piece of evidence of a nice sedentary site where people have been living maybe for as long as 100 years, uh, popping up out of nowhere, pretty much. Murwab in Qatar, with the fort there, the French team have been working on this site. It's quite a, quite a dense site out in the middle of the desert. No clear idea why it should be there yet, but uh, we're still thinking about that. But not only Murwab itself with its fort, but also the areas, as I mentioned, surrounding it. There's little pockets of villages all over northern Qatar, which didn't exist before, and as far as I can see, haven't really existed since. So this was a quite an interesting period. Things had really changed, and we don't know yet exactly why. Sohar itself, which was probably the first town in historical Oman, that's Oman in the UAE, probably the first real urban entity, I guess, came into existence, I guess, around this time, around the 8th century. We haven't got it mapped out before the 10th, but I'm pretty sure that it was there by the 8th century already, and uh, we, know that from the, we know that it was there from the 9th, from the sources. The Christian sites, which we know of. Now, this map here shows the early uh, so-called Nestorian churches from around the Gulf, of which we've got about six or seven now, including Sir Ben Yas here in Abu Dhabi. And these, I think now, generally, con the consensus is that these all popped up at this time as well. It used to be thought that they were much older, but now I think, and we can see these themselves, I think, as part of this boom, this construction boom. That would be my argument. Jumeirah in Dubai. Fascinating site we really don't know very much about. Well built, it went on, I believe, to be a later site. It goes on and probably until the 11th or 12th centuries. But there's certainly 8th century pottery there. And uh, it seems to, it's been described as a caravan station. You can see where it's located in Dubai. If you haven't been there, it's well worth a visit. You can walk in and see the set of strikes. And I don't know if you can see from that Google Earth image, the nice caravanserai, or looks like a caravanserai, the palace up in the left there, the mosque, probably one of the oldest mosques, if not the oldest mosque in the UAE, stone-built mosque and various other buildings, including a little row of houses in a souk. We don't know exactly to which period in Jumeirah's history those belong, but that settlement clearly began in the 8th century, in this boom time, and went on to be an important Islamic focal point until, as I said, until at least the 12th century. And some of the work that we're doing at the moment in, in Oman, we've located quite on the Bartana, we've located quite a few settlements. You can see here the graph that the early Islamic I'm right underneath, I don't know if you can read it, I'm right underneath the earlier zone. Well, that's a count of the number of places we found with pottery. And so the Iron Age was a big one, and then there's a drop, there's nothing for the Sasanian, the Samad period. And then the early Islamic period does represent quite a notable increase. So again, it was, even in these quite small rural areas, it was showing an increase in activity, an increase in population, an increase in imported ceramics. We've mapped out some of these sites, a place called Monarchy, for example, where we've got lots of imported pottery and structures and so forth. And uh, down on the lower Barton, uh, Al-Qadur, this scatter here, on right next to the Sheikh uh, of uh, Sultan Qaboos Highway, running through a, a settlement that's about 300 metres across, full of imported glazed pottery. So it's everywhere. It's a boom that is getting into all the tiny little capillaries and, and uh, the small wadis, and everywhere you go, you'll find pottery of this period. Again, how do we explain this boom? How do we explain this turnaround in fortunes? I don't know. It could be the trade, which I mentioned. It could be that the level of that trade was somehow affecting local communities. They were engaging with that trade. They were becoming wealthy. They were reorganizing their production and their social organization. They were engaged. They were building. They were settling down. They were moving into areas that they wouldn't have otherwise lived in. And things were going well for them. And maybe that 
magnet of trade, that power of trade, changes the communities in these areas and changed the communities in these areas and brought them in to an international system and changed their economy and social structures as the early Islamic empire extended its economic tentacles across, across the world. Or maybe it's climate. Here, we, it's a bit more difficult to argue, but you can see there in that band that there was actually a little peak of quite high rainfall right at the beginning of this time that might might be used to explain the high levels of activity, at least in the first part of this period. So you can see the problem. It's difficult to disentangle all of this. If I continue my fantastic graph a little bit further, then I would be charting the 8th century as a, a resurgence of economic activity, a resurgence of population. And as you can probably see, it's about to drop off again. But as I said, I'm not going to get into that today. So that's what I've got to present. That's what I wanted to present to you today. What can I conclude? There are some number of points, I think, that we can, we can make. The socio-political structures, I think, whose, whose presence appears quite evident in many parts of Arabia before about 300 AD, seem to have disappeared, as I've shown, I think, today, by or during the Sasanian period, reaching a nadir perhaps in the, in the 5th AD. To what degree would those changes have created a political vacuum, a social-political vacuum, a political vacuum especially, and to what degree did that vacuum eventually open the way to the process of Islamization, the historical process of Islamization? That's an important question. And some of the evidence I presented today, I think, suggests that there may be an important point there, something that we need to consider if we want to understand. We can show, I think, also quite clearly that once established, certainly in Oman, historical Oman, Islam did not lead to a decline, degradation of the agriculture, as was once argued. In fact, on the contrary, we can see a notable boom in settlement across much of eastern Arabia, from Kuwait to the Jabal Aptar, and that includes the whole of the United Arab Emirates and Oman. We can also say that there are some broad but imperfect parallels between the development of settlement, these booms and busts which I've been describing to you, and the intensity of rainfall, at least in as far as it's reflected in the Hotter Cave sequence. I don't know what you thought of that, but I feel that there's something there. Not perfect, but it does seem to be at least a, a, a possibility. But there also, confusingly, appears to be parallels between the development of settlement and regional trade patterns in the Roman period early on and the early Islamic period later. And maybe we're looking at a barometer of trade as much as, as climate in Eastern Arabia. And that's quite a, it's, it's a, certainly a possibility. However, if increased trade is an explicatory factor in this, then we need to think about how and what sort of effect trade in the maritime trade going through the Gulf, why would that have affected communities here and there in, along the Eastern Arabian littoral in some of these rather backwater areas in some cases? Is it in some places, is it again, pearling in Qatar and, and in Abu Dhabi? Is it pearling? In Oman itself, is it agriculture and, and production of copper? Are these the tentacles of globalized trade, if you like, reaching into the small communities and causing them to change their activities and reorganize and refocus their activities and, and import pottery, which makes them more visible? Possibly. I don't like that explanation very much because I know that in periods when we don't have trade, it's not so easy to explain the absence of these populations, that suddenly they disappear out of the archaeological record. They were still using pottery and they were still living in houses. They must have been. Or if, and if they weren't living in houses, then were they all had everybody become nomadic. Well, that's a possibility. So is it trade that's forcing people to sedentarize and or encouraging them to sedentarize and become more visible in the archaeological record and possibly to increase population? Well, I don't know. I don't know. And as I said at the beginning, I don't feel any obligation to make any sense in this lecture at all. And I hope that you've seen that. But what I hope I have done 
is to present some interesting and useful new data on this and sketch out the broader patterns of, of what's going on in this period and to throw out a few ideas and to explain and set out the problematic and where we are as archaeologists at the moment in our attempts to, to understand this vitally important period and the way that it affected this region and, and how it developed and what the forces that shaped it were. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so I'm now chairing my question and answer session as well. Thank you very much. I, I, I can see now that you're, you're kind of um, moving closer to uh, writing a, a co-authored article with Wilkinson about uh, <laughs> colonialism. You know, so uh, I, I haven't already got a question, but I've got perhaps uh, an alternative um, interpretation of, of, of this uh, evidence which you've presented in, in a really uh, fantastic way, actually. And I think it, it's useful in some ways to compare the situation, what's going on in um, Eastern Arabia in the late antique period between the 4th and 6th centuries, let's say, with what's going on in uh, Iran and uh, Iraq in that period. And, and if you look on the, the kind of northern shores of the Gulf, I mean, we see uh, a major period of economic growth, uh, lots of uh, uh, archaeological and, and historical evidence for you know, a great deal of activity, you know, new, new, new towns being established, the Shahristan, you know, cities like Firuz Abad. You know, and, I, and I think that uh, that comparison with, with the Gulf, that, that sharp contrast with Eastern Arabia, is, is not just a, a kind of uh, accident of history. It's, I think they're, they're causatively linked. I think it goes back to the 3rd century and the, the demise of the Parthian Empire, in which the Parthians split into a series of warring principalities. And essentially, the Arabs from Eastern Arabia cross the frontier into Iran, into Iraq, and, and they create settlements in Iraq and, and even in, on the coast of Iran. So when the Sasanians come, they want to push back the Arabs out of Iran Shahar. Mm. And they then go and they take the fight to the Arabs. Mm. We have a whole series of devastating assaults on Eastern Arabia, Ardashir, Shapur II. And, you know, Tabari later talks about, you know, rivers of blood in, in, in Eastern Arabia with Shapur II and all the rest of it. And it strikes me, there's, there's a line in, in, in Tacitus when he describes the Roman invasion of Britain. He talks about uh, you know, the Romans create a wilderness and call it peace. And, and I wonder if the Sasanians are deliberately trying to create a, a depopulated and, and demilitarized uh, buffer zone in Eastern Arabia in order to safeguard their frontier. Um, so I wonder you know, if, if, if that might uh, fit this, this pattern of, of decline in this period. So that would be, as I mentioned, Tim has a very uh, different view. Um, that would be to blame everything really on Ardashir, one man, great man, and possibly, but I don't really think it's, it is, it's likely because, first of all, Ardashir's campaign was, in Eastern Arabia was very short-lived. And uh, Tabari tells us that it went as far as... It doesn't mention Oman, this part, the, uh, historic. I'm sorry if I've offended any UAE people by constantly referring... When I talk about Oman, I'm talking about historical Oman. I know that's a little bit problematic here. Um, I've come from Sultan Qaboos University, so I'm used to a different thing now. <laughs> Probably got myself into a lot of trouble, but that, I'm thinking historic terms. Um, it, it doesn't mention... Uh, the campaign doesn't... Isn't, Tabari doesn't mention Oman, whereas Al-Dinawari does... I believe, it might be the other way around, actually, but I can't remember. But it's not absolutely clear that Ardashir got this far. That's one thing. And if he did, he didn't stay very long because Shahpur II is quite a bit later. And when he comes, he's, it's, an, it's a deliberate response, as far as we're told at least, to Arab raiding of the coast of Iran. 
And maybe he stuck around a bit longer. There are stories of him founding cities in Bahrain and so forth, and those coins I mentioned, which may have been related to the payment of troops, but they don't stick around very long either. And a little bit later, there's not, it's not at all clear that there's really anything other than the Lakhmid control, because the Sasanians used the Lakhmid tribe based in Hira, a local tribe to control Eastern Arabia for most of the time. So I'm turning it into a wasteland in order to defend their frontier. I don't see that doesn't really ring very well to me. And it it doesn't seem to fit with the evidence that we have. What I think they're doing is responding to when Eastern Arabia became a problem for them. I don't think that it was an area that they were desperately keen to take over. A bit like the Roman conquest of that island, what's the name of it, on the east, the Western European archipelago, Britain. When, 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 uh, you know, that that was a loss for the Romans. It cost them a lot of money to look after. It didn't produce very much. In fact, it reduced their tax revenues because it, it brought it into the single market and they just no longer had to pay. The same thing here. If you send an army over here and try to control Eastern Arabia, then you're going to have to pay that army and then you're going to need to be sure that you're going to generate enough. And I don't think that would have been the case. So there was some copper and other bits and pieces that they could probably get their hands on anyway. It seems to me what we see of the historical evidence of the of Sasanian period, it's just an area where they're not too worried and they come and intervene when they have to which is about three times, actually, in the whole of the Sasanian period. I can't see any possible reason for them laying it bare, and I don't see any way in, that, in, in which that would help to defend it. I mean, I don't think the Roman threat was of that nature, and I don't think it would have made any difference. So, interesting idea. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for a very interesting lecture, especially for us Persians. I have a question... Could you explain to us in layman's terms how rainfall measurements are made from 2,000 years ago? Well, I'll try. There are various ways. I mean, we are very sure. Climate evidence is stuff that we we collect it sometimes from the bed of lakes. We dig into old lake beds and we can see from the nature of the sediments as they build up how saline the water was, how much wind activity and how dunes are blowing around and so forth, what sort of and what sort of plants were growing in the vicinity. Sometimes we do the same in the seabed, and we can look at how the rivers in the area were flowing, and if it was a heavy rainfall year, there'll be more sediment than if it wasn't. And we also use stalactites and stalactites as they form through water tripping. It's the isotopes, actually, in the water, the oxygen isotopes in the water that tell us. Uh, we can date the accumulation. If you get a stalactite and cut it, you'll see it's built a bit like a tree, lots and lots of rings, each one a year's formation. So what they do is they cut them through and they examine the chemical composition, uh, the isotopic composition of all those different rings. They can work out the dating through dating sources and also through counting the rings. And then they can tell not only the amount of rainfall, but even sometimes whether it's monsoonal rainfall or northern rainfall based on the isotopic built makeup of the, of the water and its, its weight. So that's broadly, in, I suppose, layman's terms, that's how we do it. There are other uh, ways of collecting climatic evidence as well. And now I think there's a, an increasing interest in this area climatically and more and more people, we've just been doing a, a section on the Bartoner actually of a, through the, the lagoonal sediments there in the core, an old core through the subcut, effectively. And that sort of evidence is also going to be applied. And this being such an important area globally, and this frontier between the monsoonal system and the northern system, and the fluctuation in that, in that system, and the effect that that would have had. I don't know if you've been down to Dofar in, in Oman, which is practically tropical, subtropical. But the, the boundary between northern Oman and southern Oman, which is such a big climatic boundary, that boundary may have shifted around in the past. Uh, we don't know to what degree. So it could have been extraordinary changes. So it's a, this area is a very fascinating area to study the relationship between humans and climate. So collecting this sort of evidence 
is really important. When you look at a global map of climatic sequences, they're all in North America and Europe. And still very little work's been done in the Middle East and Asia. So we need now to get more climatic evidence so that we've got a clearer understanding of how climate developed in this region and how it related to human, human activities. And so would you say it's a scientific evaluation? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, do you see a pattern of scientific development, like scientific abilities, similar to the pattern you were drawing in developments or in settlements? Like I don't know, instruments or particular materials. Or, you mean te technological uh, development amongst yes, these communities? Yes, yes, yes. We don't have much evidence of that, largely because the sort of material we would find on a standard excavation is quite limited. I and mean, we can see glass, for example, come in, and that's being used. We can see. I can think of one example at the, the mosque at Julfar, and I think of the way, which was reoriented at a certain point, suggesting that they may have improved their navigational abilities at a certain point, and they just reorient the, the kibbler of the mosque by about three degrees, suggesting that they must have had, possibly anyway, quite so. One or two examples, but it's not a consistent record archaeologically. We, we, when we find such things, we're, we're lucky. It would be an interesting, a very interesting study to sit down and, and list those, those developments. We have things like lathe turning, which is used on soft stone, which comes in in the Hellenistic Parthian period, the pre-Sassanian period, for example. And there are various little bits and pieces. And when you stop to think about it, it could be a very important question. And it might be that by re relating those that we would, I suppose what you're thinking is some of these new technologies, are they coming in from abroad with this with these growths, with this expansion of trade? And are we seeing an expansion and an exchange of, of, of new technologies? And I think we're just getting now to the stage where such a study might be possible. You know, we've, we're only just, in, in the archaeology of this region, we've only recently gotten to the point where we've established a chronology that we can sort of trust. And we can start to, we've got a big enough data set that we can really start to think in terms other than where's the next site. We're starting now to have enough evidence to start to build stories and, and try to understand the broader pattern of events. And questions like the one that you've just asked would, could well be the sort of thing that we would, you know, will be, will be coming up. But you have to remember that on an archaeological excavation, the survival of things like metal objects, organic objects, and is sporadic, accidental. So we can't rely upon such things being found. It's only in very rare cases. So it's always a little bit difficult to piece such a story together. Most of the time, we find pottery and glass and stone, and that's pretty much it. So it's an interesting question, and quite possibly. Uh, we, I can't really, although I can't answer it further than that at the moment. I have a question, which information can you find in the different places about the collection of rainwater, the use of rainwater? It's always coming in this discussion, it always comes up, um, the discussion of climate changes on, and so on. Which information do you have? How did the people collect the rain rainwater? Because I think at that time it might have been very important. And I, I don't think there were many springs, otherwise we would have found travertines and it's not so often recommended that we can find um, travertine and springs like in Jebel Fire. Mm. So the question is, because we still have these days sometimes heavy rainfall and if we would collect the rainwater, it could last for a while. So the question is, which information do you have in this direction from the different settlements? Mm. Well, I mean, obviously, the, 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 the key event, I suppose, in this uh, is the development of Farage technology, sure. which we believe, currently we believe that happened in the Iron Age, maybe around about 800 BC, and that's the earliest 
a time when we can point to settlements that are clearly linked to affilage. Uh, it's possible that certain elements of affilage technology existed before, and that's a, it's an ongoing debate. It's interesting as well that the filage, when it, when it was brought in in the Iron Age, seems to have led to an, an, a boom in population. But that technology seems to have been forgotten in the Samad period, the following Samad period, when people seem to have turned back into nomadic, largely nomadic people in the central area of, of the Jebel Hajjar. So it may be that these technologies were picked up and then forgotten in some periods. In terms of actual water storage, I mean, we do find systems for skier, that sort of thing, quite regularly, but they're very difficult to date. Sometimes you've got plaster lining, but they don't tend to survive on the surface for very long, and if they get buried and destroyed, they don't leave much of a trace other than the stone walling. So it's not a question that's easy to answer, and we normally come to this question through looking at the, the distribution of settlement and trying to understand from that how they were irrigating. We're doing quite a lot of work on this very topic, actually, in the, in the area around Rostock where we're looking at the survival of field systems. And we can map and figure out in fields whether those fields were used at a particular point because of the, when people manure, spread manure in the fields, they tend to spread a few bits of pottery. And we can often figure out where the fields, and what date they were being used. And then look at how those fields relate to known settlements and try to understand how, uh, whether people were using runoff irrigation, i.e. collecting the runoff and steering it into their fields, like the awab that we see up in Rasulheimer, or whether they're using fallage, or whether they're using the Zagara wells, the, uh, these animal-driven wells where you've got an animal walking backwards and forwards, which were used up in Rasulheimer and Sharjah, and even in parts of, I think, of Abu Dhabi and some places in Al Ain, to get water out of the ground using, using an animal. It's not always about collecting rainfall, but it's about bringing the water from where it is, normally underground, to where you want it, and the different methods of doing that. Water collection tends to happen not in, in cisterns, but in fields. So they build, build terrace fields, which are actually full of rubble and silt, and the water is steered into those and it's collected and stored in the ground. And then they try to grow a crop or even two crops off of those fields. So the water storage is actually, it's a bit like the modern dams that you see in some of the wadis. It's exactly the same thing. They're forcing the water into the water table, as it were, and then exploiting the water table later on in a very localised way, if that makes sense. On the question about systems, we don't have very much evidence of, of water collection systems. And normally I think systems would be for drinking water. Uh, the cisterns I know are all for drinking water because they, you can't really store enough water in a cistern to irrigate, I, I suppose, is the key point. My question had to do with the relationship that you described between interregional trade and settlement patterns, kind of an imperfect relationship. Yeah. And it made me wonder about Western Arabia. Because, of course, I mean, if you'll pardon the kind of crude terms if you want to get a product from the Mediterranean basin to the Indian basin or vice versa, you can either go via the Persian Gulf or via the Red Sea. So I'm wondering if in the periods when settlement drops off in the Eastern Arabia and the Gulf region, and one can posit a corresponding drop in trade, if we're at a point in the scholarship where we can look to Western Arabia and say, ah, in this period, the, the, the Red Sea route seems to have, have picked up more for, mm. for whatever reason or whether we yeah. can't do that yet. I mean, after all, Islam is a, a, a product of Western Arabia, mm. so it's uh, relevant yes. to the discussion. Well, that's quite right. I mean, I'm sure that Tim would be much better qualified to answer for the early part because he wrote his thesis on precisely this topic. But for the, I can give an example. Maybe we'll hand the microphone to him for, for the later period. We, when I, period I didn't get anywhere near, but from about the 11th, 12th century, we see complete 
decline in settlement in eastern Arabia, practically nothing from Ras al-Khaimah all the way to Kuwait. We've got maybe five sites as far as I can remember, not many more than that. And also the Iraqi countryside is in terminal decline at this, at this point. It doesn't revive really until almost until the 19th, 20th centuries. And what the general consensus is that the economic centre of the Islamic world had moved to Cairo and that the merchants, the famous Karimi merchants, were no longer travelling through the Gulf and started to steer their way around through to the Red Sea. And we certainly see a decline. If that's the model, then we certainly see a decline in settlement in Eastern Arabia. And it would, does seem to be a very good relationship. On the other hand, on the Iranian side, we do see still quite a lot of occupation at this time. So that's problematic. And we do see a bit of a pickup in the, in the Red Sea at this time. But have you got anything to say on the early period there, Tim? Would you like to make a comment on the question in relation to the late antique period? Because my understanding is there is certainly more evidence in the Red Sea in the late antique period than there is in the Gulf in the Sasanian period. Probably some of the best evidence comes from Egypt and the eastern desert of Egypt in particular is kind of useful because there's no continuous occupation, so the archaeology is quite obvious there. The, the 4th and 5th centuries are a big boom, but in the 6th century, really through to the, even as late as the 9th, there's a problem. And there's a whole series of abandonments in the 6th century and it's been tied to various different things, including the Justinianic plague of the mid-6th century. But, but there does seem to be a whole series of abandonments, collapses of complex civilization. You know, the epigraphic tradition in Yemen drops off. The Aksumite coinage drops off. I mean, there's a whole series of, of catastrophes in the 6th century. And, and then in the early 7th, Islam, you know. So it's kind of a very fascinating uh, question. But there's, there's really not been enough work done yet in Saudi Arabia and Yemen to complete the picture. Um, most of it's based on Egypt. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, an understanding of the rise of Islam, then some detailed survey work from the Hejaz would be really what one would want. But it's a little bit difficult to do that in, at the moment. There are, best, not, not for other reasons than there are certain um, scholars who are already working on it, but not doing exactly the same thing. And, but certainly you, you can see a decline in the epigraphic sources quite notably in other evidence. So it's a good, it's a good question. And, and I think the Arabian-wide perspective, I showed some data from Yemen, but it seems that uh, that, that particular late antique decline is very likely to have been an Arabian-wide phenomenon. And, uh, uh, but it may have affected different areas in, in different ways. And the effect that that had on what happened in the seventh century is still obviously one of the, one of the big questions. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. <laughs>